Seemed like we should have ended that song with a cheer, right? <laughs> Maybe with football season back and the stadiums cheering, I'm thinking, okay, that's something to cheer about. Um, and there's a day coming when all the universe is going to cheer. Those on the earth, under the earth, above the earth are all going to be cheering praise. Um, it'll be a great day as God finishes his program. You know, where, wherever Jesus goes, there's going to be disruption and there's going to be change. As we've been following along in the Gospel of John, you remember that Jesus chose not to go up to the Feast of the Tabernacles at the beginning along with his family. They wanted him to show himself to the world and kind of market himself. But he went privately uh, in the middle of the week, and he ended up, though, still causing quite a stir. fact is that he went right into the temple to teach uh, the very place, the, the center of the center, where those who hated him most yielded, wielded the greatest power. And as he taught in that venue, um, his, his engaging this way generated a lot of questions, false statements and scoffing too. But through the noise of the confusion, we will hear in our passage this morning the consistent gospel testimony from Jesus' lips. His voice reminds us of what the Old Testament prophets foretold and what the New Testament apostles would spread around the world after His ascension to heaven. Eventually, it would reach the shores of this land, and eventually it would go person to person till it reached your heart and mine. But this gospel, this teaching, this stir-up that has happened in the temple all hinges on the question, who is Jesus? Who is this person? And with that question in mind, we read our text this morning, John 7, 25 to 36, 25 to 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, now as soon as you see therefore, you're saying, well, we've dropped in the middle of a story. What is the therefore, therefore? Or what is it talking about? And you may recall that, that Jesus had called on them to be honest with how they dealt with the Mosaic law, to judge righteous judgments, to admit that no one kept the law, and to admit that they violated the law of the Sabbath in order to keep Mosaic law of circumcision. And yet they were upset that he actually healed a whole body, uh, made somebody whole on the Sabbath day. And he said, you're just not being honest with the religion that, that you are furthering and that you're championing and on which you find objection to my ministry. So some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Because he's just articulated one of the reasons at least that they wanted to kill him, and that is his treatment of Sabbath law. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, that is the Messiah? Remember, whenever you see Christ in the New Testament, you're talking about the Old Testament word Messiah, the anointed one, the promised Savior King. But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ, the Messiah, appears, no one will know where he comes from. So, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, 
You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ, when the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Or the dispersion was, I mean, the dispersion of Jews into Gentile territory. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. When you read through this passage, one thing should strike you. It is full of questions. I mean, questions and more questions. In fact, as I was working on it initially, I'm going like, this is like a confusing array of questions, like, how are we going to find what's going on here? Is not this man the man whom they seek to kill? Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? With these questions swirling, we find among them two references to trying to arrest Jesus, and then a lead-off reference to his being the man that the authorities are trying to kill, but all those attempts so far fail because, as John puts it, his time has not yet come. At the center of all these questions and the attempts to arrest Jesus is the Lord Himself, boldly teaching in the temple despite His adversaries. The questions and His teaching revolve around three interrelated issues. First, the power and authority of Jesus. That's going to raise the question, who is, who is He? Could He be the Christ? Could He be the Messiah? Second, the heavenly origin of Jesus. Where did He come from? And then third, the saving mission of Jesus. Where is He going? And so, we will learn from this passage along these three lines of thought. First, consider with me that what, what caused the stir here, what caused the consternation and the welter of questions and and the alarm of the authorities was the powerful authority of Jesus, manifest in a number of ways. Look at verse 25 again. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So, they were seeking to arrest him, verse 30, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? 
The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about these things, these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. The public teaching of ministry, the public teaching ministry of Jesus was beyond what anyone had heard before. Later, those who are sent to arrest Jesus will explain why they did not seize him. They say in verse 46 of John 7, no one ever spoke like this man. You know, even today, the the power of the spoken word, the the influence of a person who who talks well and can move people and can articulate truth, it's still powerful. With all the electronics and and digital world that we live in, there's nothing that really replaces face-to-face communication between people. And if somebody can articulate well, it, it makes a difference. But Jesus was beyond the scale of anything they had seen before. His teaching was amazing in its content. It was amazing in its authority. He spoke not as the scribes, Matthew tells us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And beyond that, his words had intrinsic power, like the intrinsic power of God's words where he says, let there be light, and there is light. I mean, think about it. God created the whole universe with words. And Jesus would use words and heal people even a distance. Jesus would would use words and say, take up your bed and walk to a man that's been lame for 38 years, and he would do it. Jesus' words would drive demons out of people. Jesus' words, his teaching was powerful. In fact, in the synagogue, Mark records, and Mark's writing really Peter's uh, recollections of Jesus' ministry, they were all amazed. So, they question among, so that they question among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And that's not just the authority of I'm in charge, but the authority to back the, what you command with actual power. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. What gave the crowd further pause was that Jesus was teaching boldly in the temple when they knew the authorities had been looking for him to kill him. Had the authorities changed their mind and come to the conclusion he actually is the Messiah? I mean, why would they let him get away with this? John explains they couldn't arrest him because his time had not yet come. Jesus was on a God-appointed mission that no human beings could stop. He was unlike any other human being who ever walked the planet. And it was very obvious to anyone who was there to see him. His enemies couldn't stop him. His friends had had difficulty even believing what they were witnessing. Some in the crowd believed he must be the Messiah because of the signs he was doing. Remember, signs is one of the terms for miracles. It refers to the message that the miracle is meant to convey. Jesus' miracles conveyed this. They marked him as one sent from God. In fact, he said, the works that I do have been given to me by my Father. Just as Nicodemus the Pharisee had confessed to Jesus when he came to him by night, nobody could do the things that you're doing if he weren't from God. Nicodemus is going to show up again in this chapter. But all of these elements together, and you have a unique person who teaches like no one else with the great authority and power whom neither demons nor human authorities can stop. 
with words that carry with them the power to heal and give life. Nobody else ever met that description. He's unique. This is why we make a big deal of Jesus, because he's a big deal, okay? You, it's, it's not marketing. It's not exaggerating. It's just reporting what actually happened. For centuries, God had promised through his prophets a coming Messiah anointed with the Spirit of God. That's what anointed one is referring to. Messiah is the anointed one. And possessing universal authority, he would heal the blind and the lame. He would do extraordinary things. He would cleanse the temple. Well, the crowd wants to know, is it possible that Jesus is actually this promised Messiah? Now, Jesus, because we've been following the story all along, and so we have, we have the advantage of not just being in that crowd in Jerusalem, but having traveled with Jesus through his ministry. Jesus has already testified to the woman at the well that he is indeed the Messiah. I mean, isn't it striking how this woman with, with such a checkered past was more open to truth than those who had the Bibles on their laps? She, she was more theologically keen than those who could quote verses. He had testified to her that he was indeed the Messiah. She was looking for the Messiah. She said, when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And he says, I that speak to you am he. And the apostles then will spread the news throughout the world that Jesus matches the Old Testament prophets' uh, description of the Messiah. That's, that was Paul's method. He'd go into the synagogue where people had heard about the Messiah, where they knew the Scriptures, and he'd say, okay, look, look at these Old Testament prophecies. Now, let me tell you about Jesus. They match. They match. From cover to cover, both Old Testament and New, you find testimony to the one Savior King on, whose, on, on whom humanity's hope of redemption from sin and death depends. Only one. The gospel is the big story of the Bible from beginning to end, and the hero of that story is Jesus. You rip Jesus out, and you've got no gospel. You rip the gospel out, and you don't understand what the Bible's for. Our text this morning is just one example of how Jesus' teaching authority and power mark him as the Christ, mark him as the Messiah, the Savior King. There's no one else in all human history that matches what God promised. If not Jesus, then there's no one. And if not Jesus, then the promises of God in the Old Testament and the eyewitness testimony of the apostles in the New Testament become nothing but an empty fairy tale. And by the way, that doesn't get you off the hook. How, how do you establish a fairy tale that, is, that goes over 1,500 years with 40-plus different authors in different continents with one main theme? How do you do that? And, and how do you get people to lie so consistently about what they saw and heard? How do you do that? I mean, it really is not scientific. It's not good historical method to... Close your ears and eyes to eyewitness testimony. I mean, if you base your history on what people 2,000 years later say, then you don't understand how history works. And I mean, look, you know that yesterday's news can be reported differently than what happened 
today, right? So, so why do you think somebody 2,000 years removed would know more about history than the ones who were actually there? Okay, we have the benefit of those who are actually there. The Bible really is a testimony, of a firsthand testimony of what God said and what God did from people who are actually there to see it. Now, you can just say they're all liars, they're all crazy, they were all, you know, dreaming. Okay. But, but if you treat them as you would treat any legitimate history, then you've got to do something with what they've actually reported. The eyewitnesses, not only of those who knew Jesus, but of the centuries of church history where literally millions of individuals have been transformed by the gospel of this very Jesus. And one of, one of the, the most inspiring things that you'll ever do is to listen to the accounts of people in your own congregation and how they ended up coming to Christ. And let them tell you what they once were and what God has made them. You know, we sit here on Sunday and we go, well, these are all the, these are all the good people. You know, these are the goody two-shoes. These are the religious people that like, you know, they like, uh, you know, sitting around and singing hymns and they'll like strumming harps, harps in eternity. You know, they're, they're those kind of weird religious people. Oh, no, they're not. No, they're not. And they're not all from one sector of society. They're from many sectors of society. They come from many backgrounds. And, and, and some of them have sailed through bloody seas. They've gone through really hard things. And they've seen God be faithful. Listen to their stories and then call them all liars. See, this Jesus... Where he goes, he disrupts the status quo. He demonstrates that he is indeed the promised Messiah. So these questions for you as we think about this today, in what ways do you remind yourself and others and others of the extraordinary things that Jesus taught and did? Now, one of the downsides, you know, sometimes we'll refer to, oh, well, that was a Sunday school answer, which means you learned the truth in Sunday school generally, Okay. But it also suggests that what you learned was just a fairy tale, okay? that it doesn't actually meet life. So it's very easy for us. I mean, we're in church. We ought to be talking about Jesus, right? So, okay. So we're in church now. Let's talk about Jesus. You know, the King of Kings, you know, let's, let's have a little talk about Jesus. That's what church people do. That's what they do in church. But let's not forget who Jesus is. Let's not forget what Jesus taught. Let's not forget the power of what he taught. Let's not forget how he transformed lives, how he brought people back from the dead. Don't ever forget that. There's a reason we make much of Jesus. It's not just because your mom and dad told you. It's not just because that's what they do in the buckle belt of the South. That's not why. It shouldn't be why. It needs to be that you actually have come to know Jesus for, for what the historical documents present him to be. So remind yourself that it's really important. It's important you remind, and it's in this time of deconstruction where people are throwing off the faith and, you know, they say dumb things like, well, nobody ever thought of that problem before. And I'm going like, There's, there, are, there are shelves of theological books written on that topic. Why would you say such a stupid thing? Okay, I'll get off my snarky side. 
But, but it is, it's just, there's so much foolishness that's thrown out there as proof, and we have proof. We have testimony. And, and because of that, we also need to think, how does the powerful authority of Jesus, and by that I mean in His words, what He commanded, and the authority that He possesses, I mean, He's King of the universe, and the power that He has, how does that impact your life in practical ways? I mean, do, do you actually go through your life ignoring what Jesus has said, forgetting what Jesus has said, counting it as trivial? Or are you treating it for what it actually is and the fact that He's a living Savior who walks among His churches observing what's happening, that He is with us all the days, even to the consummation of the age? He's here. He's the Good Shepherd. And then, really, when we talk about this, we've got to ask this question, with whom can you share the astonishing words and works of Jesus that demonstrate He's the promised Messiah? You know, and one of the best ways to do that is just to say, hey, um, why don't we get together, and if you want to know about Jesus, let's just get together and read one of the Gospels. Let's read the Gospel of John. Or pick Mark, or pick, pick Matthew, or pick Luke. Let's just read it together and, and, and see what the eyewitnesses tell us. And, and as that vision of Jesus starts to dawn on them, watch and see what happens if God will not open their heart to that. And, you know, this, this is… They need, to know, they need to know that Christianity is not just something that, well, it works for you. Well, that's cool that it works for you. I'm glad you found your little niche, you know. Some people like music, and some people like art, and some people like sports, and you like religion. Good for you. You've got to get them past that and, and get them face-to-face with Jesus, who He was, what He taught, what He was like. The second thing that we see in this passage is the heavenly origin of Jesus. In verse 27, the, the crowd says this, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, when the Messiah appears, no one will know where He comes from. So the issue is where Jesus is from. Now, the crowd is wrong on multiple counts. One, they only thought they knew where Jesus was from. Later in the chapter, it's clear that, that most of them think that He was born where He grew up, in the town of Nazareth, in Galilee. Had they done their homework, they would have known that He was born in Bethlehem of Judea because at the time He was born, there was a worldwide census, Augustus Caesar had decreed, that forced people to go back to their hometown. And He was born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in the very city that Micah the prophet had foretold, Micah 5.2. And this was a well-known prophecy. Remember, Herod the Great asked this question uh, of those that were around him, the chief priests and scribes, and they gave him this verse. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, this is a small enough town. There's not a thousand people in it so that you would have a head over it. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Furthermore, besides missing the hometown that he was born in, they they thought Jesus was the son of Joseph and Mary. But the historical record reveals that he was virgin-born of Mary in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 7.14, the Lord himself will give you a sign, a miracle with a message, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. With us, God! Exclamation point. Third, the crowd is confused because of a popular teaching in that day that no one would know where the Messiah was from, despite what Micah predicted. He would just suddenly show up. Now, some Bible interpreters believe they might have based that on Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. We don't know for sure on what this false teaching was based on, but that's one of the possibilities. Well, Jesus turns their attention away from merely earthbound geography to his heavenly origin. Listen to his words. Verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. Now, Jesus' words in verse 28 are not affirming that they actually know him and where he came from. That's obvious that they don't. So, they only know that he grew up in Nazareth, and they, not only don't they know that he was born in Bethlehem, but they don't know that his goings forth have been from everlasting. He has come down from heaven, God the Son in human flesh. So, his words have an ironic meaning. He's saying, so you know me. And you know where I'm from, do you? That would be another way to say what he's doing. He's just repeating their words, going like, and then we would put, really? Really? Okay. He goes on to talk of his heavenly origin. He came from God the Father, who sent him to earth on mission. And he's explained this before. In Jerusalem, they actually, if they actually knew God and believed God to be true, they would have recognized Jesus for who he is. They would hear the correspondence between what Jesus was teaching and what God had testified through the prophets. They would recognize in the miracles of Jesus the mighty compassion of God and the one that God had promised would come. If you don't receive what God the Son says, and Jesus has made this argument before right in Jerusalem, if you don't receive what God the Son says and does, then, then you won't want what the Father says and does either. If you're going to honor God the Father, you've got to honor God the Son. The two go together because they're of one mind and one purpose. The last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he taught on this theme. He says in John 5, 36, 38, but the testimony I have is greater than that of John. For the words that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about him. So, so he said about me, he says, he talks about his works first, and now he's going to talk about his words. His voice, you've never heard. His form, you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus has been very consistent at teaching this throughout this gospel. From the beginning of his gospel, John the apostle has talked about the heavenly origin of Jesus. In the beginning, he starts with these words, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then when he came to earth and the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, pitched his tent among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When he talks about pitching a tent, it's he tabernacled among us. Think about the tabernacle in the wilderness and how the, the dwelling place glory of God filled that tabernacle, the Shekinah glory. Well, Jesus was like the tabernacle in a person. And the glory of God was shining from him, full of grace and truth. In his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus had testified in John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, tying into another prophecy in Daniel. In the synagogue in Capernaum, where was his home, uh, his base of operations during his public ministry, he said this, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in verse 62, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The testimony that Jesus himself gives is consistent throughout the Gospels. I came from heaven, I'm going back to heaven. So, this Jesus is unique not only in his teaching and his power and his authority, but he's unique in that he came from heaven. Like, most people want to know that I want to know that I'm going to heaven, but we all understand we didn't come from heaven, okay? We didn't exist before. Jesus existed before. John the Baptist would say, he existed before me, even though John the Baptist was born six months earlier, okay? So what voices from earth tend to draw you away from the testimony of Jesus sent from heaven? Remember, the crowd was confused about where Jesus was from. There's no reason for you to be confused if you listen to what Jesus has to say. And think about this. Why is Jesus' heavenly origin crucial to his identity and mission? Remember that the whole human race is under the judgment from God, and therefore only God can actually rescue us from sin and from death. Jesus has to be unique. Jesus has to be from heaven to fulfill his mission. And then if Jesus is sent from heaven, what would be the consequences of rejecting his testimony? Like, you may not believe Jesus came from heaven, but what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? And there's plenty of evidence to demonstrate that you are. What if you're wrong? If you're actually shutting your mind and your heart, not just to another human being, but, but to the one sent from heaven by God to save those who believe in him. Jesus' authority and power as the Messiah, his words, his miraculous works all testify to this heavenly origin, but he was sent on mission. He's sent from heaven, but he's sent with a purpose. And Jesus refers to that next when he talks about where he's going the saving mission of Jesus. We start to see in verse 33, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. So where is Jesus going? What is he talking about? Well, roughly six months later, during the time of the Feast of Passover, Jesus will be laying down his life on the cross to ransom those who believe in him. His enemies have no control over his exit from the world. His time had not yet come, 
but it would come. And he will go according to the timetable of God to fulfill the saving mission God the Father sent him to accomplish. He says it this way in John 10, talking about himself as the good shepherd. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then he elaborates on that in verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Jesus didn't just get caught in in the political power struggle. Jesus wasn't just destroyed by his enemies. Jesus had a mission to fulfill. He was going exactly where he needed to be at the right time. And then Jesus follows in our passage with these chilling words. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus will die on the cross, rise again, and later ascend to the Father where he would take up interceding for his own. And those who believe in him will actually follow him. They will find him. They will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 23. This is what Jesus promised his disciples in the upper room. In John 14, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And he's not talking about doing interior decorating. He's talking about I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And then I'm going to go into heaven for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm making a way for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Look, if following Jesus is just about following him down here on earth, in these mortal bodies, it's kind of like one of those greatest vacations of a lifetime that's over. At best. We want to know there's more. We want to know that following Jesus provides something that's eternal. Well, they got a taste of what his intercession for them was going to be like in his high priestly prayer in the upper room in John 17. He says, Father, I mean, this is Jesus talking, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that's why the writer of Hebrews will say it this way. Consequently, he is able, he has the power to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Look, you will make it to heaven, not because you got the Christian life down so well. You did so great. You were a super Christian, so you made it. You will get there for one reason because Jesus interceded for you. That's why. Nobody can be good enough. Nobody can be good enough. 
even the best of us, even on our best days, we're still tainted by sin and, and, and weakness and, we, and blind spots and all of that. You and I can't be good enough for something as good as the heavenly city, for something as great as the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. You and I can't be that good. It doesn't mean that our life shouldn't be characterized by good works. It's just that you can't get enough good works to make up for the bad, and you still don't have enough good works even if you had no bad. You just, it's just not enough. It's Jesus interceding for you that gets you there. And so, I mean, that's really important for you to remember on those down days, those dark days, those days when you're struggling with besetting sins or with, when you're grieving deeply and the whole world feels like it's caving in on you or, or you get a dose of your weakness as you start to age or you're diagnosed with cancer or, or other kinds of things where you realize just how pathetically weak we are as human beings. It's so critical that you know your hope is based on nothing else but Jesus' blood and righteousness, that, that there's nothing you have to plead but, but his pleading for you, interceding for you. On the other hand, those who do not believe in him, the days of opportunity will come to an end. And when they do, there ends their hope of ever entering heaven. Your opportunities to trust Jesus, certainly anybody sitting here, have been many. But there's a day that will be your last day. It may not be the last day that you live on earth, but it may be the last day God ever talks to you. You don't control that. You don't play Russian roulette with the God of heaven. You don't make him wait for your timetable. You're forgetting who's actually in charge. You're forgetting who holds your life breath in every beat of your heart. It is by his mercy that he hasn't shut you off already. And so he says... In verse 21, he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me. And this is not, this is not in our text, I'm sorry, this is in John 8. He's going to bring up the same theme. He said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So, the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. If you turn from the light, all you're left with is darkness. And so rather than taking his words to heart, the unbelievers made jokes about his warning. In verse 35 of our text this morning, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? And does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? The irony is that their words are prophetic. 
that so happens that Christ would indeed send the good news to the Greeks and indeed to all the world. In fact, God had promised to Abraham way back at the beginning, in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Isaiah had prophesied that the Gentiles would trust in the Messiah. And the risen Lord commissioned his disciples to make disciples of all nations, Jews and Greeks alike. Those who reject the Lord, they can't stand in the way of others hearing the gospel and trusting the Lord. If you don't want Jesus, believe me, he'll be happy to move on to those who do. And this has happened to whole nations in the time of history. In Luke 24, Jesus said to his disciples, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That was his mission. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, all ethnicities, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So let me ask you this question this morning. On what basis are you expecting to go where Jesus has gone? Or is it just wishful thinking? It's just pretty talk that you use at funerals. Oh, yeah, we're going to heaven. And how does it help you to know Jesus intercedes for those who do believe in him to make sure they join him in heaven? Really important for you to remember that, that he's interceding for you. And then let's, let's go further since Jesus did take the gospel to the Greeks. To whom are you taking the good news? Or do you talk about Jesus just when you're with church folk? And what man-made boundaries keep you from sharing the gospel broadly? You know, the the Jewish leadership, they they couldn't imagine taking the good news of the Messiah to to Greeks. It was all about their, their own identity. Well, we don't want to be that way. We don't want to We don't want to think that some people are beyond the pale. The good news is for all ethnicities. People from every tribe and nation will be among Christ's redeemed and will bring him praise in the heavenly city. So here in this really confusing section of questions, we hear this clear message of the gospel. The powerful authority of Jesus the heavenly origin of Jesus, the saving mission of Jesus. This is Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for orchestrating history so that we here this day could read in our own native tongue the words of the Savior. Thank you that we could read the eyewitness testimony of those who knew him and followed him. Thank you, God, that you testify to your power and your glory in creation, in our conscience, as well as in the spoken word. God, thank you for not leaving us in the dark, 
So, Lord, my prayer is that you would turn our hearts to the light. May we not be among the scoffers. May we not be among those who prefer darkness to light because their deeds are evil. Lord, may we come to the light of life, Jesus Christ, and be rescued. And Lord, then let us live in that light so that we become light to the world, drowning in a sea of darkness. For it's in Christ's name we pray.